This is David Berkus, author of Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks That Can Transform Your Life and Career, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast by my friend, Douglas Burdett. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover the smartest ideas behind what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in. Just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is a wonderful event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to be leading the workshop Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an Inbound Marketing Guide to Reaching technical audiences. For details, go to contentmarketingworld.com and for the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code marketingbook and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details in a few minutes and now on with the show. Today, we welcome David Burkus to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. David Burkus is a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. He is the author of Under New Management, and the myths of creativity. He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders at the United States Naval Academy, and his TED Talk has been viewed almost two million times. David is a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and his work has been featured in Fast Company, Financial Times, Inc. Magazine, Bloomberg Business Week, and CBS This Morning. And interesting fact, he is the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast who lives in the great state of Oklahoma. David, congratulations on Friend of a Friend and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me and uh, Boomer Sooner. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually spent some time, I guess that sounds like I was in jail. I, I lived in, in Oklahoma for a short while when I was uh, in the U.S. Army. Oh, uh, probably Lawton or... Yeah, Fort Sill at the uh, Field Artillery School. Great state. And I just remember Oklahoma is one of the hottest and coldest places I've ever been. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the wind wind blows year-round except in August when you really want it to. That's that's basically how that works. Well, they say Oklahoma, where the wind comes beating down the plains or something like that. No, that's the song. Wind comes sweeping down the plains. I'm sorry. We we like to refer to it as uh, why did, why is it so windy in Oklahoma? Well, it's because Texas sucks and Kansas blows. So oh, oh. you know that. Yeah. Yikes! Oh, 
Boy, I just lost all my listeners in those. Yeah, uh, sorry. That's Big 12 rivalry for you. Sorry. Okay, great, great. So, David... This is a this your book's a little bit of a departure from what we normally have about books about marketing and sales, but this is uh, your book is is invaluable for every single person listening, and I'd like to ask you to tell us the story of how this one came to be. Yeah, so the the big idea for the book is that we're kind of going about networking the wrong way, not in terms of tools and tactics, but in the very fact that we're looking for tools and tactics and looking for advice. So when I was writing both The Miss of Creativity and Under New Management, I ended up diving a little bit into the world of network science, the people who actually study how networks, whether it be professional networks or networks of customers or whatever it is, how they actually function. And you know what we found is sometimes it runs very counterintuitive to the advice that most people give around networking. And advice is great, but it's also autobiographical. Unless you're that same person in a similar situation, that advice on how to give a great elevator pitch or how to introduce people may not actually work for you. So the, the idea for this book came from like, what if there was something that split the difference between this world of network science and all of this networking advice? What if like Malcolm Gladwell and Keith Ferrazzi wrote a book together? And that was kind of the idea uh, that we were going for. I I think we hit it, but I can't really judge that because, you know, I'm a little biased. Well, it's very different from what I had read about in the past. And But let's set the stage here. I hear the word networking. I mean, I see the word networking like on an agenda at a conference or, at, you know, at the promotion of an event. And I just, I think I'm like a lot of listeners. I just, I cringe. I, it, it feels like it's going to be, you know, sleazy and, and insincere. I mean, am I alone in that? No, that's that's the majority of people. One of one of my favorite studies that we talked about right in right in the very beginning of the book is a study about how people feel when they're networking. And they basically took two groups of people. One, they primed to think about a time where they had to do instrumental networking, which is kind of what you're talking about. Meet, reach out and meet a new person, something related to your professional life, your career, et cetera. And then they took a different group of people and asked them to think about the, the last time they were introduced to someone who became a new friend. No surprise, the people who were doing the instrumental networking or even just thinking back on a time where they had to do it, were, had had far more statistically significantly more likely to have subconscious thoughts of getting clean, which is a huge indicator. I mean, networking literally made them feel dirty, right? Okay. So this is the I this is, I think the majority of people who go to who go to these events. And again, I think I mean, there's a reason the book's called Friend of a Friend. I think a lot of it is. We're applying this advice so that we can be more successful at it instead of just thinking about it's less about growing your network, building your network, giving that perfect elevator pitch. It's more about understanding who's already a friend of yours and who is a friend you haven't met yet, who's connected to whom, what's going on in the network that you're a part of and serving that network rather than just trying to implement this new tool or tactic that you read on a blog somewhere. Yeah. And some of those other, you know, misguided notions, you know, that I always hear about is, uh, just, I mean, maybe they work, but I just, they just wear me down. Like, well, what's your elevator pitch? And, and don't eat your meals alone. And, and uh, what was it? Repeat somebody's name three times. <laughs> you know? yeah. or, or work the room, you know? And I'm just thinking, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I, I see people doing that. And I, I'm, I, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, can we just jump to chapter 10? That, that yeah. one just blew me away. You argue that going to networking events is actually one of the least effective things you can do. Yeah, I mean, at least if you're like most people when you're when you're going to these events, and it's not it's not your fault. You know, it's not that you feel dirty and weird at these events. It's the event. 
So, and, and when I say a networking mixer or a networking event, I, I'm referring to like a very specific type of activity, the unstructured time. Usually it's like the overflow time at a conference between when the sessions are over and when they're setting up for dinner, right? Or it's the actual meetup, like someone just invited you to, to run to a cocktail party somewhere. And it's, it's that speed dating for professionals, that mm-hmm. type of event, right? There are other times where conferences will run networking hours that are not speed dating for professionals, but we're talking about that unstructured one. And in reality... Even though most of us would go into those events thinking like the whole point of this event, the whole goal is to meet new people. Most people spend more than 50% of their time with the two or three people they already know. So they're just more likely to, we know this from literally attaching little RFID tags to people and tracking who they were talking to in networking events. They spend time re-engaging with people they already know, which is fine, but it's not the goal you were going for, right? So if you treat these events as an opportunity to reach back out with what we call weak ties, that's fine. But if you're wanting to meet more new people, you're far better off investing in what the sociologist Brian Uzi calls shared activities, events where there's some other goal. It's not an unstructured time. There's some other thing that the group is going to be working on. And that thing has stakes. It can be won or lost. It can be successful or not. And it's usually something that is other than what you normally do. So my best example of a shared activity is I have this great friend, uh, John Levy, who plans dinner parties where no one's allowed to use their name or say what they do during the first part of the dinner party, which is the cooking, which is the shared activity. They're invited in, they get paired up, they get given a task, right? The stakes are pretty low. I mean, if you burn the chicken, everyone's going to hate you. But other than that, it's not that big a thing. It's not the end of the world, but it's enough to get people to go off their normal script and to have to interact with this person they've been paired with. And these shared activities increase the the depth and the richness and the frequency of new connections far more than those unstructured speed dating per professionals mixers. Yeah, really. Uh, when I read that, I, it really brought to mind so many examples of things where I've benefited from like serving on a board or doing a project with a, a group I was with or, you know, some sort of recreational activity where you're with other people and you, and you get to know them. And that was uh, very interesting. And it also sort of brought to mind like, I'm, I think you, in the book, you talk about, you know, join a not-for-profit board or something. And it brought to mind this idea, the picture I got was building a Habitat for Humanity house where you're all working together and there is a, a purpose. You're trying to get this thing built. And it's a great example of something where you would meet other people and probably form much closer ties. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Or, or you know, if, if you want to do it, increasing the frequency inside of one company, then get everybody together to we're going to organize a charity walk or, or whatever, whatever it is that's a project that is outside the normal course of business where there where there are stakes. I've actually seen uh, some people apply this to the world of the training and development departments of companies, like rather than just doing the initial trainings and what have you, we're going to do trainings on random stuff. Why? Because it draws a random collection of people. And then there's something at stakes, which is the learning. And it draws that people together and, and kind of increases the network connections inside of an organization. So it, it can be whatever it is. My my personal one is I'm a huge fan of, in addition to the nonprofit boards and charity, because that's being a good human. I'm a, I'm a fan of, I don't think people should, you know, Keith Ferrazzi wrote never eat alone. I think people should never exercise alone. I don't think that's a solo activity. Even if you love running, join a running club. You love mm-hmm. cycling, join a club. You're going to meet people from very different walks of life that you do not normally encounter. And that's a, a great way to just jumpstart it. And I mean, you get the health benefit too, which is, you know, I, I, most people are probably in it for the health benefit, not the network, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think the network probably has a good mental health effect. Yeah, absolutely. So you write that 
again, just just so surprising in the book. You write that some of our our biggest opportunities and best sources of new information come from our what you call weak or dormant ties. Explain what you mean there. So yeah, weak and dormant ties are two distinct classes uh, of connections. There's there's really kind of a couple different classes of connections. Your close friends, your weak and your dormant ties, and then the strangers that you're sort of about to meet, the reason you convinced yourself you were supposed to go to that networking event. And what most of us do is we talk about issues, we look for new information, et cetera, with our, our close contacts. And then we just jump into that networking event to try and meet total strangers. And we ignore this, I kind of call them the hidden network. And these are, are really effective connections to continue to nurture because they are similar to your close friends. They know you, they like you, they trust you, they're motivated to help you. But unlike them, they're more likely to actually have access to new information or have different people. There's a fancy networking term called transitivity, which is just that if if A knows B and B knows C, then C is likely to know A. And in your close friends and your close work colleagues, Everybody kind of knows everybody. Everybody has access to the same information. Everybody thinks alike. The other term for transitivity is redundancy, which I think is probably more telling of what we're trying to avoid. And so reaching back out to your weak and dormant ties can be a way to access that same new information, new perspectives, new opportunities as you would get if you were working the room however we're actually supposed to do it and meeting lots of new people. The difference is it's a far easier connection to nurture because they are literally your friends. You just haven't talked to them in a while. Mm -hmm. But now you say that not all weak ties are created equally. Yes. Yeah, so there's a there's a difference between a weak tie and, and a dormant tie. They kind of both fall into the weak tie category if we're looking at strong ties versus weak. The, the difference is weak ties are people you know, but you don't know that well. Right. So it's that person that maybe you work in the same company, but you only ever see him or her like when there's cake in the break room. Right. And then a, a, a dormant <laughs> hey, tie. He's is here it. on the same floor with me right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and and it, the, a dormant tie is a connection where you, you know each other and you used to have a strong relationship. And then for one reason or another, it fell by the wayside. Maybe they moved or you changed jobs or, or whatever it is. And these dormant ties are usually easier to reconnect because these, I mean, these are your friends that if you were to call them on the phone, it would feel like no time has passed. You would catch up a little bit and then you'd be right back on board. Yeah. Like maybe a, a former colleague. Right. A former colleague, a, a, a friend who moved away and now you don't interact as much, et cetera, or right. someone who changed. All, all of those things are great sort of dormant ties because the relationship is already there. There's no rapport building stage, but they are somewhere else. They're somewhere else in the network. Sometimes they're somewhere else geographically. They're going to have access to different perspectives and different insights. And that's why they're much more powerful than the close connections who might be more motivated to help you. And I mean, the reason they're more powerful than a total stranger should be obvious by now. Right, right, right. So I want to ask you one question that is, it seems really central to the book. You say that we're all one big network, and, and I guess rather than having built your own, there, there's already a big network, and the people who succeed are not the ones with the best collection, but the ones who can see and uh, navigate their network best. And you, you talk about in the beginning of the book about some uh, guys in Silicon Valley, that this one particular fellow who really seemed to, to understand that. I'd like you to ask, uh, ask you to speak a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this guy, this guy is my favorite networker ever. Uh, his name is Adam Rifkin, right? And, and I'm not the first person to write about Adam before, although interestingly enough, when I reached out to Adam Grant, who had previously written about Rifkin, Grant's response was, please, the more people who know who he is, the better, right? <laughs> because he's, he's a bit stealthy. Like he was, he was voted 2011. He was named by Fortune magazine as the world's best networker. 
right? Now, automatically, when I say the world's best networker, you're picturing like 6'1", but 185 pounds, you know, good tan, nice hair, white teeth, three-piece suit, right? Yeah, that's what the listeners think I look like. No, I know. I, and, and I've watched your, pre, your pre-roll video, so I know it's not true. Um, unless you hired an actor for that, in which case, very, very savvy. If I'd hired an actor, it would have been a much better actor. <laughs> anyway, Adam doesn't look like that, right? He's introverted. He's shy. He, he kind of looks like a panda bear. Uh, I mean, literally, he, his Twitter handles and, and company name is Panda Whale, right? He wears hoodies, not three-piece suits. And yet he was connected on LinkedIn to more of the fortune sort of power list. So 40 under 40 and uh, 100 most influential, all of those sort of things. He was connected to more of them than, than anyone else. And he's a bit of a sleeper, right? Although ironically, my, my most telling thing about this is that when fortune did the calculation and then assigned it to a journalist, she was like, oh yeah, I know Adam. Like just automatically, <laughs> so proof of concept, right? right? The reason he was so successful is that again, it's not about growing your network, building your network, or any other term you use to refer to adding more contacts to your phone. Adam learned how to network from getting a PhD in computer science and studying the way computers are networked to each other and had this grand theory that if he takes care of the network, then the network will take care of him. So one of the first things he did early on was start to build these communities of entrepreneurs. Eventually, it got formalized in this group called 106 Miles. But he was always generous with his connections, so introducing people to each other. And he was always willing to kind of help and provide advice for other people. He was willing to take care of the network he was in. And as such, it took care of him. And in sociology terms, we call this social capital, the value in a network and the value that can be extracted individually in a network. And so Adam is a great example of this. And it's far different than thinking that it's networking is just about adding, you know, LinkedIn connections or adding contacts to your phone. It's not about running up some score. It's about taking care of the people in the network, the branch of the network that's already around you. We're going to take a break here so I can talk about one of my favorite things, single malt scotch. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018. I'm going back this September to Cleveland for this awesome conference, and I'm looking forward to meeting more of you just like I did last year. That was so much fun. I'm going to be doing a workshop with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an inbound marketing guide to reaching technical audiences. The workshop is Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers. If you're a manufacturing marketer and are able to attend, I just want to warn you, when this workshop is over, we may end up having to rush you to the emergency room at the Cleveland Clinic because you are going to be at risk of overdosing on so many awesome practical, actionable marketing insights that are going to grow your manufacturing business and boost your career. To get the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock another $100 off your ticket price. That's right. That's $100 you can then spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. But enough about that. Let's talk about scotch. If that rock-bottom price to attend Content Marketing World isn't enough incentive, here's one more. When you register using promo code MARKETINGBOOK, there's also a bottle of scotch in it for me from the nice people at Content Marketing World. We're talking win-win here, people. But now let's say you can't attend Content Marketing World and you feel bad about that. Well, you can still send me a bottle of single malt scotch. Seriously. The mailing address is at marketingbookpodcast.com. Do it. 
But let's say you can attend Content Marketing World and you're thinking, well, Douglas, I like your podcast, but I'm just not yet ready to send you a bottle of scotch. But I would like to show my appreciation for what you're doing here. I've got you covered too. Here's what you do. First, pour yourself a drink. Have two. And then go to iTunes or Apple Podcast, as they call themselves now, and leave a one-sentence review for the Marketing Book Podcast. And then message me on LinkedIn and tell me which one is yours so I can raise a glass and toast your review and your good taste in podcasts. (laughs) And now, back to the show. Now, there are a lot of people listening who are climbing the corporate ladder. So hopefully they're not they're not driving fast or operating uh, dangerous machinery. But in your book, you say because because I'm worried about them driving off the road. You say climbing the corporate ladder may actually be the worst path to the top. Yeah, this was one of the more surprising insights from the book. So to give a background on on why this works, so there's a theory in network science called the theory of structural holes. Essentially, networks are not egalitarian where everyone's connected to everyone. Apparently, everyone's connected to Adam Rifkin, but other than that... <laughs> I'm not, but I'm, I'm going to reach out to him. <laughs> oh, I could introduce him to you. I'm sure he would love to meet you. <laughs> anyway... They're not egalitarian where everyone is connected to everyone. There's nooks and crannies, right? It's less like a piece of graph paper and more like a like a spider web or mm-hmm. like I mean if you if you're listening and you're like, what is this thing with that? Just do a Google images search. You'll find all sorts of clip art of circles and lines and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. And what happens is this phenomenon known as clustering. People kind of cluster together by activity or background or a, a bunch of different reasons. In organizations, we call this silos, politics, and turf wars, right? But what happens is that the people that span this gap, the people that are connecting two clusters to each other are the ones that are creating the most value. They're responsible for information sharing between these two groups. And then that value that they create by being a bridge reflects on them as well. So then that then begs this question, how does one become this, what we call broker, this bridge between these structural holes? And so a couple of researchers have been looking into this. One of the most telling studies is they looked at a large organization and and studied it over multiple years and studied the career paths and then the performance reviews and rate of promotions and salaries and all of that. And they found that the most successful people, the ones that were getting promoted more often, the ones that were getting a higher salary, getting higher performance evaluations, were not the steady ladder climbers, not the people that stayed in one silo and just climbed rung after rung straight up. They were they coined this term organizational misfits. The people that kind of rotated around took a little while to get started. So they're trying a bunch of different types of tasks or types of uh, branches of the organization and then found their track. And then what they found is that as they started climbing, they were bridges to other departments that even the most seasoned executives didn't have. So, the, I mean, there's there's two lessons here. One is that if you're kind of spinning your wheels and playing around with a bunch of different stuff before you get started, that's OK. So long as you keep those network connections there, because it's it's going to be good, good for you in the long term. The other is that if you're not that person, it's time to start building bridges to other departments. It's time for to go out to lunch or grab coffee with someone who works in legal, even though I know legal is the is the like n- organizational nemesis of marketing, right? It's, <laughs> right? it's time to start start getting to know a few more people from finance, et cetera. It's time to do things that build bridges in your own career because trust me, you'll need them. And what's funny is organizations know this. As soon as you get to sort of a certain rung, then they have all these high potential programs where they rotate people around. It, but it's kind of too little too late. It's far better to do this early in your career and then keep these uh, these connections going because it'll shape your thinking in a more holistic way that will serve the organization over the long term. Yes, and you know, there's a, 
a, a similarity in the military now where in the past it was uh, the people, you know, the folks were only like in the Air Force or only in the Marines, in the Army, and now the military, of course, they realize that the, all the armed forces have to work together so closely that getting a, an assignment to like a joint staff where you are working with other members of other branches of the military actually helps your career more. And it, it, it's probably doing exactly what you're talking about, where you're, you're becoming a network broker. And I believe you talked about General McChrystal doing this. Yes. Yeah, so this was, I mean, probably it's an idea that existed before him, but he was the one that really understood the power of what he called this sort of team of teams approach. And and what he did is you know, he inherited the the joint, uh, I'm going to screw up the actual name, but it was the, the joint task force uh, assigned with defeating Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And what he found was that the left hand wasn't talking to the right hand, wasn't talking to the middle hand, wasn't talking to the back. There's a lot of hands in the joint task force and, and they weren't yes. talking to. And they're all fists of steel. <laughs> And one of the reasons is that there were already these sort of liaison positions, but it was usually like that thing you do if there's only nine months left in your your term of service and we don't know what else to do with you, et cetera. And what General McChrystal started doing is going, no, I want the best and brightest in those positions. I want it to be seen as something of honor because we need those information flows. We need all of these people to start talking together. And in a very short period of time, he got to the point where if you, if you send the best and brightest from the Marines to go work with the U.S. Embassy in Iraq – Suddenly, now people aren't looking down on on either cluster, right? Now they're like, well, I know such and such from that, and he's a good person. So I'll probably assume that the rest of the team is a good person too. And now over, I mean, it's been a number of years, uh, more than a decade now, like you said, you're right. It's one of the more honorable uh, positions that you can get is to go be a liaison to one of these people. And it really kind of started with Stanley McChrystal and this idea that we needed to build not just a bunch of teams that weren't talking to each other, but we needed to build a team out of these teams. So can you tell us, so we've talked about network brokers. Can you explain what you mean by a super connector? So this is a, a really interesting term in network science. So the reason it's called super connector is that we assumed that, you know, we're trying to explain six degrees of separation or maybe the game six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We assumed that the world was sort of interconnected because of these people that had a disproportionate number of contacts. And that's what a super connector is. And if you if I were to chart the number of people, whether it be in your company or that, you know, et cetera. Uh, if I were to chart the number of people based on the number of contacts that they have, we think it would be uh, an inverted U, a normative distribution, where there'd be an average and most people would be within one standard deviation and all that fancy stuff. But it doesn't. It actually would follow a power law. It would follow an 80-20 principle. It would be uh, a much dip. It would be. It'd look like a slope instead of an inverted U. And so we called these people at the top, these super connectors. What's funny is we actually used to assume that these were the people that were keeping a network connected. What we know now is that the reason that they are super connectors is that the network actually sort of has a gravitational pull effect. It's, it's what we call preferential attachment. So the most connected in a network, even if they just have a small start to begin with, that compounds. And as new people join the network, they're more likely to be introduced to that most connected person. And so I, I think of it as sort of how like planets form with gravitational pull. Eventually, all the objects get pulled in and new stuff kind of gets pulled in. It's good news and bad news for most people. Most people are not a super connector. 
But the good news is that anybody can kind of leverage this preferential attachment. If you're being generous with your network and introducing other people, if you're making a point to reach back out to weak ties and you're making a point to go to the right types of events to meet new contacts, eventually there's a snowball effect that will take over and it really will get easier. I think one of the things that frustrates most people about networking is you look at the super connectors and you go, well, yeah, but they already know everybody and what have you. There was a preferential attachment tells us there was a time when that was not true. And that's good news for anybody looking to grow a network. Mm -hmm. Also reminds me of a flywheel (laughs) that after a certain amount of time, there's less and less uh, work to keep it going. Here I am running around with planets. That flywheel is a much simpler analogy, but yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about something I think is, I just thought it was so super relevant to marketing and sales. And that is, uh, if you could explain the, the concept of the, what you call the illusion of majority, and how people and and even companies can leverage that. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of thought we'd talk about that the whole time because it is, you're right. It's the most marketing friendly idea. The the idea with the merger. So think back to super connectors, right? And then think back to the idea that humans are uh, herd creatures. We're tribal creatures. We look to the left and to the right, and we use that to get sort of a gauge on what is popular, what is the consensus belief right now and what have you. And what the majority illusion says is that if you target the the more connected people, if you're targeting the right people, it's possible to have a very small minority of people believe something, recommend something, advocate for something, et cetera, and yet make it look like the majority of people are all on board with this idea. And we call this the sort of majority illusion. And in, in the book, I talk about how Tim Ferriss, who in addition to being sort of a body a biohacker, et cetera, is a really savvy marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, Tim Ferriss sort of leveraged this with the launch of his first book. Uh, the idea was he was targeting 18 to 35-year-old tech-savvy males. And so when the four-hour work week came out, if you were in that category, which he was also in, then Tim Ferriss appeared everywhere because he had spent two years building relationships with the tech blogs and with the conference organizers and the, it was, it was pretty small at that time, but the podcast hosts and all of that sort of thing that were in that space. So if you were an 1835 year old tech savvy male, you thought, who's this Ferris guy? He's everywhere. He calls it the surround sound effect. The actual network science term is the majority illusion or the illusion of majority. Uh, the thing that's interesting is you watch his career and he actually just keeps doing it in different verticals. So mm-hmm. we go from bio, we, we go from sort of productivity with four hour work week. Then we get into biohacking with the four hour body Then we get into rapid learning, which is really what the four hour chef's about. And that's about it. That's really, there's only really about three areas that he speaks to. Uh, and that's about it. And o- over time he appears like he's everywhere in those verticals, but there was a time when that was not true. And I think this is good news for most marketers. I mean, if, I mean, if you haven't figured out that the age of mass media is over, I don't know how to help you. Um, but the, the majority illusion really gives a recipe for figuring out, okay, who, who are we going after now? Who are the most connected people? Who are the people everybody's taking their cues from? And if we just selectively target those people, we can get a far better ROI on anything that we're trying to do because it looks like we're everywhere, even if we're not. I think that the reason so many companies may wrestle with this is because they are so reluctant to focus on a particular niche or handful of niches. Oh, I agree. Nobody ever got fired for buying a Super Bowl ad, which is a shame because almost everyone should be fired for buying one. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but I think that sometimes, uh, you know, I love to say, you know, there's riches in niches, but uh, there's such fear 
for companies or or even professionals to want to zero in on there because it seems so counterintuitive and there's a great fear that they are not going to that they're going to miss out on business by focusing on that niche. So, David, the most interesting concept of all the in the book was this idea of homophily, and I'm going to spell it, H-O-M-O-P-H-I-L-Y. And I'd like you to explain what it is and why we should resist it, because I, it, it's kind of invisible. It seems like a lot of people don't even realize it's going on. Yeah, no, and that was a really surprising insight for me. So, so homophily is a term in a variety of social sciences. It, it comes from the Greek love of same, right? Homophily. And originally we thought that, I mean, this is the reason for birds of a feather flock together and like attracts like and all of those sort of mantras. And originally we thought that this was a purely psychological phenomenon, right? That people were just, they liked being around people. I mean, there, there is some of that. We do like talking to people who are like us because mm-hmm. clearly they're brilliant, right? Um, but <laughs> And good looking. Um, right, exactly. But also it's like when, that, when you go into that, that networking event, I, I'm so relieved when I see somebody I know. Exactly. Um, but then I, I, there's, there's a lot more going on there that makes me want to go talk to them. Exactly. And then this, but what I, so I thought this would be the majority effect, but when you dive into the research, what we actually find is that people experiencing the pull of homophily, people who are surrounded by too many people that are self-similar, more often than not, it's actually a network problem, not a sort of desire for like, et cetera. The way, the way I like to put it is that diversity is a network problem. It's 2018. There, yes, there's a small percentage of people who are just straight up bigots, but most people are not. Right. Most people want to have access to diversity in their thinking and their connections and their friends, et cetera. Most organizations strive for that. And what we find is that it's it's not a matter of just overcoming those smaller implicit biases that draw us towards self-same. That matters. But we also have to pay attention to the network effect, because if you have a bunch of close friends that are like you, you may be actively trying to add more to your network and actively trying to sort of be more diverse. But the introductions that they will serve you are very similar to yourself, et cetera. And so over time, what compounds is that even though people don't uh, consciously want to, this small bias sort of compounds and gets to the point where you're suddenly surrounded by people that are really similar than you. And so what, what I encourage a lot of leaders to do, and I think this is true for any organization that realizes they need more of this, is audit who you're spending your time with. You're going to find, if I asked you to go through your date book and your your phone logs, et cetera, and find the, the 25 people you talked to the most in the last month, you're probably going to find that 15 to, to 20 of them are very similar than you. Similar functions, similar ideologies, similar background, probably similar ethnicities and genders too. And then another five to 10 are not. Now you've got that list. So A, you're, you're getting this idea that it's probably a network effect because you certainly didn't intend to do that. But now you also have a list of people to spend a disproportionate amount of time with moving forward, to ask for introductions from more often, to lean in and listen to more clearly so that you can kind of resist that initial pull, because we know from studying just the organic development of networks that it does not work that way. It works towards the clustering and towards the self-same. So you have to consciously work to grow your network, not in a way that more is better, different is better. Mm-hmm. And this was relevant to the, well, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the era of mass media is over. And it seems like the the danger of homophily now is that people really can get sucked into the vortex of their own echo chambers politically, and they're hearing less and less uh, about divergent viewpoints. And you started that chapter out talking about a, the a recent presidential election about how divided, at least I guess, in the United States, so many counties are becoming. 
Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me that I mean we've we've known over the last sort of fifty years that it's actually not red states and blue states. For those of you outside of America, that's the two main political parties, and I know we look weird because we only have two, but um, it's not it's not red states and blues. It's not red states and blue states. It's more that it's red counties and blue counties. People mm-hmm. are picking up subtle cues, right? If you drive a sob, I can make a pretty educated guess about how you vote and what your ideologies are. And so a neighborhood full of sobs might be more comfortable to me. Or, I mean, if you drive an F-150, I can make a pretty educated guess. And so, you know, this came this came to a head to me. I'm, I'm in the midst of writing the book and I'm watching the the presidential election. And I'm in a really weird spot because I live in Oklahoma now, but I'm originally from the Northeast. And so I'm watching the reactions the day after. I mean, there's, there's the sky is falling people for sure. And then there's the like, yay, I'm going to celebrate this new era of everything that the sky is falling. People hate that wasn't what surprised me the most. What surprised me the most were how many people were shocked by it. I feel like I had a front row seat to kind of both communities Mm -hmm. and I'm realizing, no, this is, this is pretty clear. Nobody's talking to each other anymore. We're just clustering off in, like you said, our own little echo chambers. And then the most frustrating thing to me after this, and unfortunately I'd already sort of finished the manuscript, so I couldn't talk about this too, is is yes, fake news is a problem, but choosing our news is a way bigger problem, right? <laughs> when you look at when you look at the inf- even when you look at the data, like the influence isn't that there are some small percentage of people that are literally delivering fake facts. It's that we're choosing our own facts by what we choose to listen to and who we choose to take it from, and that's a way bigger problem that unfortunately is going to require a much more intensive solution. Yeah. So when I learn about that, it's just, it, it reflected back on my network. And I'm thinking, you know, I really actually, or we all have to be much more proactive about trying to become more of a broker and, and meet more folks. Last question I wanted to ask you about in the book was this related to what you call multiplexity. And that is, what's the likelihood of a friend becoming someone you do business with versus somebody you meet through business and becoming a friend? Are there dangers, upside, downside? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we love this kind of, it's not personal, it's just business thing, which is, you know, we, it's weird. We say it so often that we forget that, like, it was from a mafia movie. Yeah, it's usually when bad news is being delivered. Right. No, no, exactly. But but it, we we all kind of do it. We put people in a work bucket or a friend bucket, et yeah, cetera. Sure. And in in network science, there's this relatively new sort of discovery called multiplexity. And, and what this is, is actually, it's less a discovery and more a realization that we needed a little bit different way to categorize networks. So we used to just assume if you know each other, that's a tie. And then we started looking at, well, how do you know each other? And if you only know each other in one context, let's say work, that's a uniplex tie. And if you get work and you also exercise together and you volunteer on that nonprofit board, that's a multiplex tie. You have multiple reasons for connection. Now, what I think is interesting is that business gets personal. So we know really going both ways that there are benefits to it. You're much more likely to start a business venture with a friend rather than someone that's a uniplex work only tie. You're also, if you have more friends at work, you're more likely to be more productive. The the irony actually is that you're more likely to be productive, but there's also kind of an emotional drain. There's a little bit more drama in the workplace when you do it, but that's offset by the productivity gains. So it's business really is personal. It's not, it's not personal. It's just business. The problem I think is that so many of us are still categorizing work friends versus real friends, et cetera. And they're, they, we need to be thinking they're all just friends and we all need to be looking at multiple reasons for connection. What I've learned to say post publication is that humans are multifaceted creatures. And so we ought to be multifascinated with them and let that relationship grow into a multiplex time. Mm, well said. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? 
the, the networking is not about meeting new people. It's not about running up the scoreboard and adding more connections to your LinkedIn. You already exist inside of a network or a section of a 7.4 billion strong network. And the people that, that operate the best are the ones that figure out how to serve that network and create value for that network. And then there's a spillover effect back to you. But if you just keep trying to run up the score, you're just going to be known as that guy that's running around press and flesh handing out business cards. And that's not how you want to be known. You want to be known as Adam Rifkin. You're, you're reading my mind because that's exactly what I envisioned was the person who looks upon LinkedIn connections or Twitter connections or whatever as some sort of scoreboard yeah. um, of connections versus engagement. So David, what books have inspired your work and career? So I, I am kind of unashamed about telling people that my, my career goal is to be the next, next Daniel Pink. Um, somebody else is going to beat me to that title. Dan's like 17 years ahead of me in his career, but whoever, whoever she is, then I'll just change to being the next her. I just haven't figured out who it is yet. So I'm highly influenced by Dan, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, I think are also in that vein. There's a lot of us in this vein that are trying to translate social science research into practice. And that was, you know, when I was 19 years old, that was what I got fascinated with. And that's what I keep trying to do. You know, the Heath brothers and Daniel Pink are, at least for me, in this uh, this small list of authors where when they come out with a book, just go ahead and buy it. Yes, pre-order it. It'll <laughs> just, be fine. Because he hasn't, you haven't been disappointed in the past, and it's not, they only seem to write something when it's a really a groundbreaking. Yeah, I'm, I'm that, although I'm kind of addicted or going for that, although I'm kind of addicted to the process. And so it's like every two years instead of every four or five. So I'm okay with people not pre-ordering. You can wait to listen to this interview before you buy it, but that's, they're the template. They're the inspiration for me. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that like they stumble into a model that I'm fascinated with. And I hope there's enough room for me too. I think there will be. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah. So I had the chance to to read an early copy of Heidi Grant's book, Reinforcements, which is, uh, it just came out fairly recently, but it is a fascinating book about how to ask for help, but not in like a sleazy, manipulative persuasion way, how to ask for help without feeling weird. I think most of us don't call in reinforcements or call for backup as often as we should, either because we feel like we're supposed to look like we've got it or because we just don't know how. And I am certainly that way. And so it was a super enlightening book about how to how to call in for reinforcements without feeling awkward and weird, which is to me, it's a good compliment to friend of a friend. I wish I had read it before I was doing that book, but you know, reading it after is just as good. Well, we'll make sure to include a link to that at your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. I read another one of hers. It's over on the shelf. I can't see it at the moment, but I, I liked it very much. So now I'm going to have to go get it. Yeah, no, it, the other great one from her is called No One Understands You and What to Do About It. And it's basically about how bad we are at perceiving the thoughts and desires and emotions of other people and then how to kind of counteract that. Uh -huh. so really, that's a solid read, too. Super. Uh, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So the, the single best place would be the show notes for the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you very much. You already said you're going to link to everything, right? I mean, davidberkus.com is a great website to go to too. But like, Douglas, you, you put together some awesome show notes. You interview awesome guests. If you're listening to this, he wants you to go there. He just is tired of telling you to do that. So go to the show notes for this episode, and then that'll take you everywhere you want to go. And listener, don't take my word for it. Listen to the guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> so we're going to have a link to davidberkus.com. And on Twitter, you're David Burkus, and that's B-U-R-K-U-S. So if you're on Twitter, please tweet at David Burkus and thank him for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm Marketing Book on Twitter if you want to add me to the conversation. And we're going to include a link 
to David Burkus's LinkedIn profile. So to the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to this show on your podcast player of choice like Google Play Music or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote, we don't have a network. Rather, we're embedded inside a massive network that we must learn to navigate. Doing so requires paying attention to who is in your network and recognizing that how your network works matters for issues much larger than just finding that next client or landing that next job. Social networks aren't just transactional and they never were. They're developmental. Your network is influencing you And so you better begin influencing your network, navigating your network deliberately, making choices about who your friends are and being aware of who is a friend of a friend can directly influence the person you become for better or worse. Your friend of a friend is your future. The name of the book is Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Career. The author is David Burkus. David, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that closes the book on episode 184 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Content Marketing World 2018, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and get the absolute lowest price on attending, go to contentmarketingworld.com and use promo code MARKETINGBOOK. There's also a link to Content Marketing World at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Phil M. Jones back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Exactly How to Sell, the sales guide for non-sales professionals. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 